0: An Introduction to Adult Safeguarding. You're listening to the Public Law Podcast, brought to you by the members of 39 Essex Chambers.
1: Welcome to An Introduction to Adult Safeguarding. This is a podcast that's being released as part of a series of podcasts from 39 Essex Chambers during Adult Safeguarding Week 2023, which runs between the 20th and the 24th of November. We are your hosts for the podcast. I'm Katie Scott, a barrister of over 20 years' experience in adult safeguarding, particularly in adult social care and healthcare settings.
0: And my name's Niasha Weinberg, a junior barrister at 39 Essex Chambers, practising
1: in adult safeguarding law. And as NUSA says, we both practice from 39 Essex Chambers, a chambers that offers safeguarding advice from a large team of silks and juniors in respect of both children and adults across a wide selection of sectors, including sport, charities and the public sector. So just to outline what we're going to be covering today, we're going to have a short introduction to explain what safeguarding is and then look at adult safeguarding under the CARE Act. We're going to look at safeguarding for those who lack Mental Capacity Act capacity, look at abusive relationships with particular reference to coercive control, and then look at hoarding and forced marriage protection orders. And then we will wrap up and give you some information about some other podcasts that 39 Essex Chambers are going to release. So I'm going to start us off to give you an overview of safeguarding, and I'm going to start by answering the question, well, what is it we're talking about when we talk about safeguarding? So safeguarding adults means protecting the rights of adults to live in safety, free from abuse and neglect. So we need to bear in mind that the kinds of abuse we commonly see, physical abuse domestic violence, sexual abuse, financial abuse, etc., are acts done to an adult by a third party. But safeguarding also includes protecting the rights of an adult to live in safety from neglect, and that can include self-neglect. So we'll look at hoarding later on, but self-neglect can arise from mental health issues. So a safeguarding outcome could lead, for example, to an assessment under the Mental Health Act and then somebody being sectioned under the Mental Health Act, or it could arise, for example, from dementia and that could lead to a Mental Capacity Act outcome, so perhaps somebody being moved to a care home so that their need for food and shelter and so on could be met. This series of podcasts relates to adults, but it's important to remember that safeguarding applies to both adults and children. But when we talk about adults, we're talking about action taken to safeguard adults who are vulnerable due to having care and support needs. So, for example, older people or people with disabilities or people with mental health issues and so on. Effective safeguarding is about seeking to protect an adult's rights, as well as protecting their physical safety and taking action to prevent the occurrence or reoccurrence of abuse or neglect. So it can be proactive as well as reactive. And it's quite useful to look at the Care Act guidance, which tells us what effective safeguarding entails. And paragraph 14.7 of that guidance says that it's about people and organisations working together to prevent and stop both the risks and experience of abuse or neglect, while at the same time making sure that the adult's wellbeing is promoted, including where appropriate, having regard to their views, wishes, feelings and beliefs in deciding on any action. This must recognise that adults sometimes have complex interpersonal relationships and may be ambivalent unclear or unrealistic about their personal circumstances. So it's not just individuals or public bodies or commercial organizations doing things to others who are vulnerable. It encompasses the vulnerable adult, the person that's being safeguarded. It encompasses their views, their wishes and feelings and their beliefs and so on. So I'm going to pass over now back to Naisha Thank you very much, Katie. So you may be listening to this podcast as a public
0: body with a particular concern about a number of your service users, or alternatively, you may be working for a private organization or a charity, and there may be circumstances in which an adult in your care presents a series of issues which raise safeguarding concerns. In either of those circumstances, the route towards conducting a safeguarding inquiry is through Section 42 of the CARE Act 2014. So which adults fall under the definition of the Safeguarding Inquiry? That's answered by Section 42 itself, which says, This section applies when a local authority has reasonable cause to suspect that an adult in its area, whether or not ordinarily resident there, has needs for care and support, whether or not the authority is meeting any of those needs, is experiencing or is at risk of abuse or neglect and, as a result of those needs, is unable to protect himself or herself against the abuse or neglect or the risk of it. And in the circumstances which arise, the local authority can then make a safeguarding inquiry. The types of adult in general will be those who, because of particular issues such as dementia learning disabilities, mental ill health, or substance abuse have particular care and support needs that might make them vulnerable. So how do we define abuse for the purposes of section 42? Abuse includes a wide range of things, including sexual, emotional, and physical abuse, alongside financial abuse, which itself includes having money or other property stolen, being defrauded, being put under pressure in relation to money or other property, and having money or property misused. And what about neglect? Neglect is both self-neglect and also cases where a person is dependent on another who is not meeting their needs. So the safeguarding inquiry route becomes available under section 42 when the conditions that I set out above apply but also, following the guidance at 14.44 to the CARE Act, local authorities may independently choose to undertake inquiries, even when there is no explicit duty under Section 42 to do so. Passing back to Katie.
1: I'm going to deal with safeguarding for those who lack capacity within the meaning of the Mental Capacity Act. If you have a concern that an adult is being sexually abused or financially abused by a partner or perhaps by a neighbour, and you have reason to believe that they lack capacity to make decisions about, for example, contact with that neighbour, then one of the first steps to take is to assess that person's capacity to make decisions about contact. If you conclude that that adult lacks capacity to make decisions about contact, and part of the safeguarding plan is to restrict contact, for example, between the adult you're safeguarding and their neighbour or their partner, then it may be necessary to bring proceedings in the Court of Protection if there isn't agreement between the two individuals that their contact should be restricted. You may in any event need to go to the Court of Protection to get injunctions or other orders to restrict the conduct of the third party if you're concerned that they are not going to stay away from the adult who needs safeguarding. The leading case on getting injunctions in the Court of Protection is the Court of Appeal case of Re G from 2022. And that is authority for the proposition that the Court of Protection can grant injunctions on an interim basis and on a final basis. And will do so where, and this is a quote from the judgment, there is an interest which merits protection and a legal or equitable principle which justifies exercising the power to order the defendant to do or not to do something. So clearly you need to join the third party that is doing the abusing as a party to the Court of Protection proceedings. And the court will make an injunction where it's made a best interest declaration that, in our example, that the individual who is being safeguarded should not have contact with their abusive neighbour or their abusive partner. And the court is concerned that that best interest declaration will be frustrated or undermined by the abusive partner or the abusive neighbour, unless an injunction is granted. It's important to remember that you can't have a power of arrest attached to an injunction granted under the Mental Capacity Act in the Court of Protection. And we'll mention a little bit later on bringing proceedings in the High Court, asking the court to exercise its inherent jurisdiction. And you can't have a power of arrest on a High Court injunction under the inherent jurisdiction. So the way you enforce such injunctions is by making it clear to the person against whom the injunction is directed that it is a contempt of court to breach the injunction and then you bring committal proceedings for contempt of court in the usual way.
0: We're next going to look at best interests and safeguarding in the context of an abusive relationship. One subset of abusive relationships are those in relation to coercive control exercised by one individual on another. And coercive and controlling behaviour is defined in the Family Procedure Rules 2010 at Practice Direction 12J. Coercive behaviour means an act or a pattern of acts, assault, threats, humiliation and intimidation or other abuse that is used to harm, punish or frighten the victim. Controlling behaviour means an act or pattern of acts designed to make a person subordinate and or dependent by isolating them from sources of support, exploiting their resources and capacities for personal gain, depriving them of their means needed for independence, resistance and escape, and regulating their everyday behaviour. If there is an individual within your care that you believe may be subject to coercive and controlling behaviour. One route is to make a referral to the police where you think specifically that an offence under section 76 of the Serious Crime Act 2015 has been committed. And that section covers the offence of controlling or coercive behaviour in an intimate or family relationship. The police has a number of powers in relation to domestic violence That includes police powers to issue domestic violence protection notices. These include emergency non-molestation and eviction notices, which can be issued to a perpetrator when attending the domestic abuse incident. They take effect from the time of issue. They last for 48 hours, after which time they must be reviewed by a magistrate's court, who can then make a domestic violence protection order. In other circumstances, it may be a better route to bring a case in the Court of Protection where the victim lacks capacity. and In a moment, I'm going to go on to discussing the recent case law in relation to an individual lacking capacity in the case of coercion and control. Alternatively, one may bring a case in the High Court pursuant to that court's inherent jurisdiction. The inherent jurisdiction, to clarify, is best understood as the ability of the High Court to make declarations and orders to protect adults who don't lack capacity, but where they are vulnerable. The inherent jurisdiction is known as the great safety net, which means that in the absence of any express provision, the clear implication is that if there are matters outside the statutory scheme to which the inherent jurisdiction applies, then that jurisdiction continues to be available, i.e., the inherent jurisdiction of the High Court applies to fill the gap in relation to adults who have capacity but are vulnerable. In such cases, the court will need to determine whether the person's capacity has been vitiated. To quote, the inherent jurisdiction can be exercised in relation to a vulnerable adult who, even if not incapacitated by mental disorder or mental illness, is or is reasonably believed to be either under constraint or subject to coercion or undue influence. Or thirdly, for some reason, they are deprived of the capacity to make the relevant decision or disabled from making a free choice, or incapacitated or disabled from giving or expressing a real and genuine consent. The purpose of that jurisdiction is to return the individual to capacity. Coming on then to recent case law in relation to an individual lacking capacity, the case of MB and PB, 2022, EWCOP 14, concerned P, who suffered a brain hemorrhage which caused her lasting injury. As a consequence of that injury, she suffers from impaired cognitive function and right sided weakness and spatial neglect. She was assessed as lacking capacity and relied entirely on others for her care. Since 2019, P had been living in a care home subject to a standard authorisation. P was married to MB, with whom she had four children, and at the time of the application she was 65. During the course of the Court of Protection proceedings, various safeguarding concerns were raised by health and social care professionals. Contact between P and MB was restricted at the care home, and as a consequence, MB brought proceedings. The court found, during a finding of fact, that there was a pattern of coercive and controlling behaviour. And in relation to the best interest decision that was ultimately taken in this case, the court said at paragraph 67, I am, however, concerned that the loss or cessation of all contact between P and MB may not be in her best interest. I explored this issue with the care home manager. She explored the view that she would be content for there to be a trial of contact face to face between P and MB, but that she was not prepared to have MB within the main building. I thought this not an unreasonable requirement in the circumstances, in particular when what she describes is a pod which is available, which she would be content to see used by P and MB. So just to review then, the conclusion in that case was that the evidence of a coercive and controlling relationship between MB and PB did not lead to the cessation of all contact but simply for a number of safeguards to be placed around that contact as a married couple to ensure that they could continue to see each other in a manner that was deemed to be safe from the perspective of the court.
1: Thank you. I'm going to now turn to look at hoarding. So this is one of the examples I gave earlier where a person is self-neglecting and safeguarding steps may need to be taken in a sense to guard against the risk that they pose to themselves. Now, there are many reasons why hoarding may require a safeguarding intervention. So I've had cases where the person's propensity to hoard has led to them losing many tenancies to the point where they may have had to end up in a care home, even though they didn't meet the criteria for a care home, because no more social landlords would be found that would be prepared to give them a tenancy. I've had cases in which the state of the property has become so dangerous that public bodies have had to take remedial action we commonly see cases where the hoarding and the state of the property is such that it gives rise to health risk to the person living there and indeed to people living in neighbouring flats or neighbouring properties. So foxes, vermin, rats, etc., cetera, moths and so on. And we also see cases where there are fire risks from the amount of paper and flammable material inside a property, or indeed the belongings in the property are stacked in such a way that they could fall and risk crushing or suffocating the person that's living in the property. So uh, unless there are environmental routes that a public body can take because the property's a hazard, the only action that can be taken on a safeguarding basis is either with the person's consent, which is usually going to be difficult where they're a hoarder, or if they lack capacity to make decisions about their items and belongings under the Mental Capacity Act. So there is a fairly recent case of A, C and G, C from 2022 in which the court looked at the question of capacity in a hoarding context and held that the matter to be assessed was whether or not P had capacity to make decisions about their items and belongings. And the court gives quite a detailed judgment about what the relevant information is that, in that case, GC needed to be able to understand and retain and use a way in order to have capacity and the court came up with five different categories on the facts of that case but of course that relevant information may change if the facts of a different hoarding case are different but in GC what they looked at was what the volume of belongings and the impact of those belongings was on the use of the rooms in the property whether he understood could retain, et cetera, that information. Whether he could understand the the need for safe access to the property and the living areas, the creation of hazards, so the extent to which the accumulated belongings created hazards to the health and safety of the residents, the safety of the building and removal and disposal of hazardous levels of belongings. So, The kinds of safeguarding action that might be required or you might want to think about in such a case are really varied. So in the GC case, for example, he was offered therapy to try and deal with the actual behaviour itself, the actual hoarding behaviour. Um, court protection proceedings were instituted and injunctive relief was granted by the court. I've had cases where The court has come up with an order in which the local authority can go in on a regular basis to clear the property. And P must vacate the property and must allow the local authority in to clear it so that the tenancy can be maintained. And in the GC case, they appointed a deputy, a property and affairs deputy. That was a case in which AC actually owned the property. So the court appointed a deputy the deputy had the legal responsibility for upkeep of the property itself, as well as the belongings and so on within the property. So the deputy was able to be the decision maker on the ground as to how often someone had to go in and check the accumulation of belongings and when and how those should be disposed of. And so it's quite interesting reading that case. There's an annex to that case which sets out all the conditions that the official solicitor said had to be in place in order for AC to return to the property that she shared with GC. I think it runs to something like 17 different points and you can see the wide range of steps and remedies that the parties were looking at in order to try and make her return a success. Before we wrap up I'm just going to touch very briefly on forced marriage protection orders because it's a useful weapon in the armory of the safeguarder in certain circumstances. So Section 63A of the Family Law Act 1996 gives the court the power to make an order to protect a person from being forced into a marriage or from any attempt to be forced into a marriage. And it's important to note that the terms of the order can relate to conduct within and outside England and Wales. And that the definition of marriage under the Act includes any religious or civil ceremony of marriage, whether or not it's legally binding. So it can include marriages that take place in foreign countries that wouldn't be recognised under English law. What happens is a local authority will bring an application in the High Court seeking injunctive relief against named persons, preventing those named individuals from forcing the subject matter of the application into a marriage. And there are other orders that are also commonly made in such applications. So, orders preventing the threat of or use of violence against the person, preventing the person from being removed from the jurisdiction, so effectively a travel ban, an order requiring the person's passport or travel documents to be handed over, usually to the local authority or sometimes to the police an order preventing the named individuals from applying for further passports for the individual who's being protected under the order. And those are granted as injunctions, for which there is a Section 63CA of the Family Law Act makes it a criminal offence to breach the terms of a forced marriage protection order. So as long as the order has been served on the local police force, And it's also commonly served on the UK Passport Agency, where that's relevant or even a a foreign embassy. As long as the police know that there's a forced marriage protection order in place and they have reason to believe that there may be a breach of that, they will, of course, have a power of arrest in the usual way.
0: If I may also be able to add another option and another route, if the authority concerned about safeguarding wants the individual who is safeguarded to remain within their home and to ensure that the individual perpetrating the abuse or neglect is moved elsewhere, there is the option of considering action under the Antisocial Behaviour Crime and Policing Act, which specifically allows local authorities to obtain injunctions if a person has engaged or threatens to engage in antisocial behaviour. And that includes conduct that has caused or is likely to cause harassment, alarm, or distress to any person. The injunction's purpose is to prevent the person in engaging in antisocial behaviour. And it can be extended to exclude a person from their home in the circumstances where that individual is over 18. The application is made by certain people or bodies, including a local authority, and the court thinks that the antisocial behaviour in which the respondent has engaged includes the use or threatened use of violence against other persons. Or, secondly, there is a significant risk of harm to other persons from the respondent. So, again, Pursuing the route of the Anti-Social Behaviour Crime and Policing Act enables the exclusion of the perpetrator from the home, rather than the conventional court of protection route, which is to remove P from
1: the home to a safe place. So I hope that this overview of what safeguarding is and the routes and remedies that are available to those who want to take safeguarding action has been helpful. There are going to be four more podcasts released during Adult Safeguarding Week by 39 Essex Chambers. So there is going to be one called Safeguarding Adults in Sport, in which Susan Rodway Casey and Nicola Greeney Casey will look at a range of different kinds of abuses that arise in sport. So sexual, financial and overwork or bullying. And the approach of NGOs to safeguarding and a look into who their policies protect, as well as considering the overlap between disciplinary regime and safeguarding. There's also going to be a podcast on the duties of charities in respect of adult safeguarding. That will be presented by Ian Brownhill and Francesca Gardner, and they will be looking at the expectations of the Charity Commission and the updated guidance, the role of trustees in safeguarding adults and particular considerations when charities are providing direct care or support to an adult. Ian Brownhill and Scarlett
0: Milligan will be discussing adult safeguarding considerations for commercial organisations, including when these might arise, what commercial organisations need to know, and civil liability in a safeguarding context. Our final episode will then be Steve Broach and Anna Bicaregui discussing safeguarding adults in school and university settings, including allegations of sexual misconduct against students and safeguarding and young people with SEND and disabilities, including how to keep this cohort safe and also how safeguarding can be misused as a reason to refuse to admit or refuse students with SEND. In addition to the above podcasts, you may also like to listen to one of the 10 episodes of the Safeguarding podcast series, Session in Essex Chambers, released in the summer of 2022. Each episode of that podcast explores interesting and unique perspectives in respect of safeguarding children and adults at risk, from safeguarding in esports to the role of the Safeguarding Adult Board. There is something for everyone, presuming that you're interested in safeguarding. You can find them all on our website at www.39essex.com. Thanks for listening. Find our other podcasts and resources over at 39essex.com.